Well, when you start talking about faith, I mean grace, you realize that there is so many places you can go, so many things you can do. So you just have to start out and say, okay, I'm only going to do this many times. Uh, and so I'm only going to do this many times. And I'm not going to uh, do grace as a subject, as a topic on uh, Palm Sunday or Easter. But of course, both Palm Sunday and Easter are just full of grace. I mean, they're here because of grace is why we have them. When we started talking about grace, we talked about the grace of God in our salvation. You know, we are saved by grace alone. It's only through our faith in Jesus Christ and he gives to us salvation by grace. And then the next week we talked about it's not just salvation. We can live in grace. We can live day by day in grace. Looking at and understanding and, and uh, feeling and receiving the grace of God. We can continue walking with the Lord by grace. Paul said to the, to the Galatians, are you so foolish that you think you began by grace, but now you walk and you grow by works of the law? No, we're saved by grace and we grow by grace and we live by grace. And then I took a week to try to uh, just kind of explain grace. And, you know, it's one of those things that is just inexpressible. You can't explain it even though I think I gave it a good try. But uh, that, that's, uh, you, you can't explain grace. And then last week we talked about how God's grace is sufficient for us even when things aren't going good, even when things are difficult, even when things look like they're hopeless, we still can experience the sufficiency of God's grace to lead us through now, I'm going to do two more times on grace, this week and next week. And what I'm going to do these two weeks is try to, to put it together and see how the grace of God works in real life. I'm going to look at some biblical examples. I'm going to look at three biblical examples, two this morning and one next week. Two of them are right out of the lives of the disciples and one of them is out of the parables of Jesus, the most amazing parable, I think, of all. And so we're going to talk about those examples in the Bible, in real life, of how grace works. And the more you look at it, the more you study grace, the more ways you find that God has expressed it. You know, grace is sovereign. Uh, God's grace is sovereign. That means that it originated in him. It is sustained by him. He's in charge of it. And yet, saying that, you realize you've only touched the surface of grace. And so today I want us to look at an event in the life of Peter. And then we're going to look at an event in the life of Mark. Now, just to... To ease your mind just a little bit, we're going to spend a whole lot more time in Peter than Mark. So when we get through with Peter, 
I'm not just halfway done, okay? <laughs> we're, we're almost all the way done when I move over to, to talk about Mark. But one day, uh, very close to the end, the disciples got into a discussion about which one of them was the greatest. I always find, or which one of them was regarded as the greatest. You know, that, that's a great discussion to have. You ought to have that discussion with your friends sometime. Which one of us is regarded as better than the others? You know, that's what they were talking about. Believe it or not, that was their discussion. And Jesus heard them. And when he did, he began to teach them about real leadership, about real greatness, about real servanthood. And then Jesus turned to Peter, which many regard as the greatest, but Jesus turned to Peter and said this, Simon, Simon, and you know Simon was his given name. Uh, Peter was the name that Jesus gave him, meaning the rock. But here he, he uses his, his given name, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan wants to sift you. Satan wants to test you. Satan wants to tempt you. And Peter, instead of being scared, instead of falling back, instead of saying, oh, help me, Jesus, he just began to boast of his strength, about how strong he was, and have his faithfulness. He said, uh, you know, I can handle this. You know, Satan can't tempt me. I can't be tempted. I can't be tested. I'm strong enough. I'll be faithful to the end. And so Jesus warned him again in the very next verse, or a couple of verses later, Luke 22. He said, Peter, I say to you, notice he changed his name. He's not calling him Simon now. He's calling him the rock. The rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. So he gets specific. He says, this is what's going to happen, Peter. You're going to deny you know me three times before the morning comes, before before daylight comes. And uh, at that point, up until then, they're in the upper room. They've, had, they've taken the Lord's Supper. Uh, Judas has gone out to uh, betray Jesus. And then they all leave and go out to Gethsemane where Jesus was finally arrested. <clears throat> and, uh, and to give him credit, Peter tried to be brave. He tried to stick up for Jesus. He pulled out his sword and, and was willing and ready to fight until Jesus told him to put it down. So the high priest arrested Jesus anyway. And the scripture says, and the disciples fled. They're all gone. Except Peter follows them to the trial. Jesus is there. doesn't tell us exactly how Peter got from the garden to the house of the high priest, but you just figure that he, he must have followed them, maybe at a distance, but he followed them. And then he's sitting outside the high priest's house where uh, Jesus is being tried. Do you know if you go to Jerusalem, they'll take you to this house? They'll take you to what they believe was the ruins of the Caiaphas' house 
in Jerusalem. And it's underground because it's a, a archaeological site and there's buildings up on top. And you walk around there and you look, at, at least I did, wondering, okay, where was the trial? Where, where was it that they tried the Lord in this? Uh, and where, where was Peter sitting? Where was the campfire? You know, I do, you don't know any of those things, but it, it makes it real. It makes where you, you know that these things are real. And so Jesus, Peter was sitting outside this courtroom, the high, house of the high priest, and then just as Jesus warned him, when he was accused by others around the fire, he denied even knowing Jesus three times. Three times. The public denial of Jesus Christ by Peter is a terrible thing. But when you look at God's people all through the Bible, you discover that pretty much all of them did at least one thing terrible. You know, they weren't perfect people. The Bible doesn't hold up God's people as being perfect. He holds them up as being normal folks. You know, Moses, uh, he was a murderer. He murdered an Egyptian. That's why he had to go to the desert. And then he got angry, and, and God punished him for, for his anger by not allowing him to go into the promised land. Elijah, we think about Elijah, the, the great prophet. Uh, but you know, Elijah suffered depression. He got so depressed at times that he just went into a cave and just asked the Lord to take him. Just just go ahead and bury me here in this cave. He was so, uh, you know, and, and you think that a person with depression doesn't have faith, but we know Elisha was a man of faith. Samson. Samson had this recurring lust that he just couldn't seem to break. He couldn't seem to defeat. With Thomas, he was a cynical doubter. He doubted everything he saw. Uh, and he doubted that Jesus had been resurrected. He even saw Jesus there and said, I'm not sure that's really you. He was a doubter. With Jacob, he was a deceiver. He, he tricked his brother. And he tricked his father. And he conspired with his mother to, to uh, trick his father. And the Bible doesn't pull punches about any of these people, even when it's talking about its heroes. You know, a hero, a, a strong person, can do things and, and, and mess up. It happens. G.H. Charnley was a British pastor about a hundred and something years ago. And uh, he wrote a little story called The Skylark's Bargain. And he tells a story of a young skylark who discovered one day a man on the road. Now, I don't know if you know what a skylark is. It's not a Buick. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, He's talking about a, a bird. It's European, Asia. It's a bird that lives over there. There's a lot of larks, but there's one specifically that's called a skylark. And uh, evidently, it was a favorite bird among poets in Europe because it had a couple of things that uh, 
were remarkable. Number one, when it took off, it just flew straight up. And it just flew up straight up until it was pretty much out of sight. And then when it landed, it came straight down and, and landed. And so it was a pretty amazing takeoff and landing for, for a bird. And the other thing about it is that it's the only bird that sings while it's flying. It sings while it's, it, it's flying in, in the air. And so they, they were known for this high flight and the fact that they sang as they flew. Anyway, this pastor tells a story about this skylark. And he discovered this man that was traveling down the road. And the man was singing, who will buy, who will buy? I'm selling in all weather fine and fat and juicy worms in exchange for Skylark's feathers. The Skylark and the man made a deal, one feather for two worms. The next day he was flying again. The Skylark was flying in the sky with his father. And the older bird said, You know, son, we Skylarks should be the happiest of all birds. See our brave wings? They lift us high in the air, nearer and nearer to God. And after you know what I just told you about skylarks, that, that makes more sense. It's a bird that flies up nearer and nearer to God. But the young bird did not hear because all he could see was an old man with worms. And so down he flew, and this time he took two feathers from his wings and got four worms as a feast. This went on day after day all summer, and autumn came, and it was time for them to fly south. But the young skylark couldn't do it. He tried to dig worms and trade them back for his feathers, but the man wouldn't reverse the transaction. So the pastor says the young skylark died, and he was buried under the green grass. And now they say that every summer, the older birds take the young birds and fly mournfully around his grave, calling out to one another as they fly. Now here you get to hear what the skylarks sing as they fly. Here lies a foolish skylark. Hush your note, each bird that sings. Here lies a poor lost skylark who for earthworms sold his wings. You know, that's the greatest temptation in our life. It's the thing that, that Satan puts before us to exchange the wings that God gives us for the worms of the world. To change the best for, uh, for something less than the best. To be tempted away from the things of God. Several years ago, Discipleship Journal uh, did a survey of their readers and he just asked and, you know discipleship journal was a a, a journal uh, that was designed for pastors i subscribed to it for many 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 years uh that uh it was designed for pastors most of the readers were pastors uh, most of the articles were designed for pastors and uh, a survey of it they surveyed the the uh, readers and they asked them what was the greatest spiritual challenge that they faced. The number one result was materialism. To trade the, the honor of God for material things. 
The second one was pride. The second one was self-centeredness. The fourth one was laziness. And you just go down the, the list. Anger, bitterness, uh, lust, envy, gluttony, lying. And the survey respondents all said this. That the temptations are more potent when they had neglected their time with God. In other words, when we're not walking with God, we're more susceptible to temptation. And to resist temptation, the writers, the readers said, 84% of them said, the best way to resist temptation is by prayer. The second is by avoiding compromising situations. The third is by Bible study. And the fourth is by being accountable to someone else. Those are the ways that you can avoid the temptations. But you know, God warns us about those temptations. You know, he may not warn us as specifically as he did Peter. He may not call you by name and warn you, but he warns us of all those temptations. He warns us of being angry and hateful and having unloving spirits. Uh, and it seems like whenever you want to serve the Lord, when you're a Christian and you desire to serve the Lord, you're more attuned to failing in those ways and those situations. Uh, it reminds me of the loneliest guy on the football field. You know who the loneliest person on the football field is? What? The place kicker. The place kicker. Who would you think it was? The umpire. They don't have umpires. I guess they do have one umpire in football. Huh? Anyway, no, it's the place kicker. The game's coming down to the end, and, and you watch. The game's coming down to the end, and the team's trying to get into position for um, a field goal so they can tie or win the game. And they're over on the sideline. The camera shoots over there, and, and there's the kicker. He doesn't even have anybody holding the ball for him. He's got a little thing that he sets it up on. Nobody talks to him. Nobody says anything to him. He's just kicking that ball. And you wonder what he's thinking. Is he thinking, oh, score a touchdown so I don't have to do this? Or they say, no, don't make it so I don't have to do you know, what, what are they saying? Because as the game winds down, they're hoping for a chance. Or maybe they're hoping not to have to take the chance. Because... They're the player on the field that can fail. When you attempt something, that's when you have the chance of being tempted to failure. But the good news about that is that Jesus prays for us in our temptation. In the same verse where he told Peter that Satan was going to sift him, he says this, But I have prayed for you, Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, will strengthen your brothers. Jesus said that he was going to pray for Peter that his faith might not fail. Notice he didn't say he was going to pray for him that he withstood the test. Jesus knew he wasn't going to withstand the test. He knew that he was going to fail. He knew he was going to deny him. 
So the real test, the thing that Jesus prayed for him about was after he failed, that he wouldn't lose his faith. The real test of a person, a pastor or a lay person, is not how we handle the stresses of life. Because some of them we all handle well, some of them we don't handle so well. The real test is how do we respond when we mess up? That's what Jesus prayed for. That when we mess up, how do we respond? Jesus' prayer is not for the sifting. He knows what's going to happen there. His prayer is that after the failure, the faith will still live so that Peter might grow and mature and minister to others. Isn't that incredible? You can begin to see grace right there. And then it's the grace of God that forgives. Over a couple of chapters later, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, it talks about the forgiveness. Uh, the, the Lord warns us in chapter 22, he says, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Uh, but here's what it says when, G- when Peter did it. Listen to these verses. Listen to this verse. The Lord turned and looked at Peter and remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. I don't know if that does anything. That just twists my heart up when I see that passage. It's an emotional passage. Imagine. Just imagine that you're there. Imagine that you're Peter. And you're afraid. And you've just denied Jesus, knowing Jesus, or being one of his followers. You even cursed and said, blah, 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 I don't know that man. Now that was cursing. You can make up your own words. That's what, that's what, that's what Peter did. And then you look over at Jesus, and he's looking at you. What that must have felt like. What that must have looked like. You know, it doesn't say Jesus glared at him. It doesn't say Jesus shot daggers at him. It says the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That's how God treats us. He treats us tenderly. It's just a look. But in Peter, there is that conviction. Peter must have felt like a complete failure. He had been in a hard place, and it was a difficult time. But Jesus had warned him, and he had failed anyway. I don't know if you've ever felt like a complete failure or not. Sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes it's due to the immensity of the job that we have. But Failure can be forgiven. You know what Peter did after the Lord looked at him? He went out and wept bitterly. The Greek says, he entered into a state of bitter crying. 
He cried over and over and over again bitterly because the strong man that Peter was, the amount of faith that Peter had, he had failed the Lord that he loved. He thought he was at the end. He had failed Jesus Christ. But one of the things that's, that's amazing about the story is that in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, when they're talking about the res- resurrection, here's what they say. The Lord has really risen, and he has appeared unto Simon. Who did Jesus appear to? Simon Peter. That's who he went to. So, God's not just easy. He reminded Peter of his sin. But he knew of Peter's love and devotion. And the grace of God that forgave his past also forgave his failure. The same grace that saved him forgave him a second time when he failed him. But that's not the end of the story. Over in the Gospel of John, one of the last times that they saw Jesus, it says in verse 15, chapter 21, verse 15, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd, my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now Peter begins to get grieved. Why is the Lord asking him three times? Was it because he denied him three times? Why? Why? He, and Peter was grieved because the Lord said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Tend my lambs. So you see what happens there is that God recommissions Peter to try again. Let's restart it. You're the minister. And we know this time Peter did it all right. Right up until the end. Well, that's Peter. I told you I wanted to talk about two people, and I also told you that most of the sermon's gone. This is just a this is just an add-on. This is just free, okay? <laughs> it's about John Mark. In Acts 13, 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions, Paul, they were on their first missionary journey. They put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John, this is John Mark, he was Barnabas's nephew. He was with them on that first journey. It says, But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So he dropped out. He dropped out of the mission. He dropped out of the church, whatever. He, he quit on the missionary journey. And so two chapters later in Acts, 
After some days, Paul says to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So let's go on another journey. Let's go on another missionary journey. We know that as the second missionary journey of Paul. Verse 37 says, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, along with them. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along. He had deserted them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. Paul's hard. He says he shouldn't go with us. He dropped out. He quit. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So this was the big split up between Paul and Barnabas. In the first missionary journey, everything was Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. When they started the second missionary journey, Barnabas and Mark sail off to to uh, Pamphos, and nobody ever hears from them again, or at least Barnabas. We don't know what happened to them. don't know what they did. And the rest of Acts talks about Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas. Skip forward several years, maybe a decade, maybe a little more. Paul's writing a letter to the church at Colossae. It's in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So something's changed Paul's heart. Now he's commending Mark to the brethren and he's recommending him to the brethren. Skip forward a little bit further. Paul's in prison. He's writing a letter to Timothy. It's one of the, one of the last letters that he writes. He's, he's about through. They're about to crucify him, execute him, cut his head off. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to uh, Timothy, he's asking him to come and see him. He says, only Luke is with me. Just Luke, he's the only one here with me. So pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Guys, that's incredible. Paul goes from saying Mark doesn't deserve to go on the journey to saying bring Mark with thee. He is useful. What exactly do we learn about grace from these two examples? Peter and Mark. Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you right quick. There may be times we mess up. Probably that shouldn't be a maybe there will be times we mess up. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes it's possible that we would even deny Jesus Christ like Peter. Sometimes we may just give up too early like Mark. 
But the same grace of God that forgave our sin in the beginning will forgive our failures and even recommission us to his service if our faith doesn't fail. That's the grace of God at work in the world. God is growing us in his grace. He's growing us in in his wisdom. He's growing you in his grace. And God is not really so concerned with our failure or how we fail or how we give in, how we sin. I'm not saying he's not concerned with those at all, but it's much more important to him is what we do with it when it's over. Judas and Peter both denied Christ. Judas for silver, Peter to save his hide. I believe Jesus would have forgiven them both. I believe he would have forgiven Judas. The problem is, is that when Judas sinned, his faith failed. He felt remorse. He gave the money back. But then his faith in Jesus Christ wasn't strong and he killed himself Peter on the other hand sinned felt remorse repented stood up and called upon the Lord and tried again and Peter received the grace of God we can receive that grace too no matter what our sin no matter what our temptation no matter how we responded to it, no matter how we've fallen, Jesus is always ready with his grace.